I'm going to say the following, and that is I'm a firm believer that government should not regulate my life and that if private industry can regulate the private sector, that's so much for the better for the simple reason that we know what we want as opposed to government telling us what we don't want. Hello, everybody. I have with me Mac McGuire, who is the chairperson of what is known as the Professional Firearm Trainers Council, the PFTC. They play a critical role in the management and regulation of how firearm training is presented in South Africa. Mac will explain how it functions in a little bit more detail, but I just want to go into the story behind the PFTC which again is a success story based upon uh, a failing within government. And that is that many years ago, the regulatory body assigned the responsibility for issuing what we would call a statement of results or confirmation of training, experienced a great deal of difficulties. And at the same time, the regular or organized firearm training industry became concerned that there were elements within the training environment that issued false training certificates and people were submitting these false training certificates and being deemed competent by the police to possess a firearm without having done the training. So the private sector started the process of forming a professional body, and again Mac will tell us what a professional body is, that took the function of regulating firearm training and properly regulated it with the purpose of eliminating fraudulent training certificates and ensuring that everybody would go through a standardized basic level of training that would be common to all firearm training institutions. So Mac, let's talk about the PFTC and let's start with what is a professional body and how many are there and why do they exist? Thank you, Martin. So the Professional Bodies is registered and recognized through the South African Qualifications Authority, known as SACWA, which is directly linked into the Department of Higher Education and Training, which oversee all qualifications within the borders of South Africa. They've identified the problem that they can't dictate to industries, industry-specific requirements or specifications. So with that involved, they said, well, we can give training, we can give curriculums, we can give certification. Once that person leaves the educational environment and goes into industry, industry themselves need to recognize at what level is this person able to function and to contribute within that industry. That created the idea for the professional bodies. There's now 106 professional bodies from firearms right through to accountants, through to construction companies, through to… So would the Legal Practice Council, for example, be a professional body? Chances are that most of those old councils or committees or authorities have moved over to the professional bodies. As I said, it is a requirement that they are registered and recognized by SACWA based on the NQF Act. And then the idea is that in partnership with these educational authorities, that industries can almost self-govern, self-regulate to a certain degree or assist in the regulation. And I'm going to say the following, and that is I'm a firm believer that government should not regulate my life and that if private industry can regulate the private sector, that's so much for the better for the simple reason that we know what we want as opposed to government telling us what we don't want. Well, well, I think that's the positive thing of this whole process is government actually realizing they can't do it alone. They have to consult and interact with industry with the role players in specific areas if they want it to be a success because we tried that in the earlier process when we went over to outcomes-based education and it simply didn't work. 
the standards weren't maintained. It didn't do anything for unemployment, et cetera, et cetera. So this was the, the answer. It's still new. The professional bodies meetings concepts came about in 2008. The first professional bodies was registered around 2011, 2012. I think we were the second or the third one registered. And as I said, now in 2018, 2019, we're sitting with 106. So there is a growth, but it's in, it's a new environment. So both sides, industry or private sector, as well as the government or state organs are still learning how to deal with all of this. So I'm going to summarize it in my layman's terms. If I understand what you're saying, in some piece of legislation, a requirement, a legal requirement that some form of training be required. So for example, if you want to be a registered professional engineer, you've got to have a degree or you've got to have enough knowledge and experience to satisfy the regulatory council that you can be a professional engineer. So you come out of university, for example, with a degree, you then have to register with a professional body or a regulatory body, and they will assess your knowledge, skills, and so forth, and say, yes, you can be registered as a professional engineer, and then there are probably different levels of registration depending on your level of qualification and what you're prepared to do in terms of qualifying further and further. I think that's a, a correct way of putting it. And if we link this now specifically to the PFTC, let's talk about the Firearms Control Act because we all know, or we all should know, that in order to get a firearm license, you don't just walk into a police station anymore and submit a piece of paper and say, give me my license. It's a lot more complicated than that. And one of the prerequisites, in other words, you cannot apply for a firearm license without having done the training. The training is made up of, in essence, two components. There's theory and practice. Theory is law and the requirements of the Firearms Control Act, and then the practice is the shooting. That results, if you'll excuse the pun, in you being issued a certificate. How does the PFTC fit into that environment? All right, so I'm going to just go back one step to your previous comment of saying, so as a professional body, we issue professional designations, which gives you your ranking, if I could use a different term, as a professional designation of where you are and what capabilities and what you can have, which looks at years of experience, knowledge, capabilities, as well as educational certification. So let, again, let's, let's try and be a little bit specific so people okay. can identify with it. Sure. Would that be, for example instructor level one or how all right so we've got five designations the bottom three is the most common so you've got range officer tactical range officer and then professional firearms instructor so those are the sort of building blocks that you step up we're in a bit of a unique position as a professional body which not all professional bodies are we've been appointed as the quality assurer by the quality council for trades and occupations that have delegated in agreement with them in partnership that we would quality assure and that's where we get involved in your second part of the question of now the person wants to go and do the certificate and go to the police. So all the training providers that claim they are accredited to offer unit standard-based training or qualification-based training has to be registered or accredited with us. We then do the quality assurance, so the oversight, the monitoring, we do the spot checks, we call it verification visits. There's a whole moderation process that takes place. And based on that, we would then, in conjunction with the provider issuing their own provider proficiency certificate for the level of training that has been completed, we then issue a thing called the statement of results, we short to SOR. And these two things is the evidence the police require where they refer that the prescribed training has taken place within the act. So now you've thrown a whole lot of terminology at me, and my head is swimming a little bit, so I want to try and break it down so that whoever's listening can understand some of these terms. Let's talk, first of all, I think about quality assurance. Now, 
is that like putting a stamp on a piece of meat on the production line and then wrapping it and selling it as grade A, or is it more complicated than that? Uh, it's a little bit more complicated, but I suppose in essence it's the same thing where you want to know what you're getting, what level of product went out there. So first off, we use the unit standards which is building blocks within a qualification, which gives us the minimum requirements of the theory, the practical, which you spoke about earlier. We have to ensure the materials utilized during the training meet these requirements. They contain the necessary elements, which the unit standard requests or requires. We then also make sure that they've covered all the practical components and that the necessary evidence that a learner went through the theoretical, the practical training and the testing process or assessment process that we require to say that they've met all those building blocks or all the steps in the process. So how does this portfolio of evidence fit into what you're telling telling us okay so this is like the the file or dossier that it, the training provider or the instructor that works with you as the individual wanting your firearm license will build so he's going to take build a file he's going to take your registration form your formative or open book exam your closed book exam the targets that you shot there's a few things pftc require him to sign which basically is things like declaration of how much ammunition you have physically fired so we have control of that we also ask them to give feedback on how the experience is where all this goes into a file which they then have to file based on that a moderation takes so that's called the assessment process building of this file and so the decision who keeps this file the training provider themselves keep this file are you allowed to access it yes that's part of our verification process so all as i said that building the file or the initial initial making a decision on is this person found proficient or not proficient in the training process is the assessment process 10 percent of all assessments have to be moderated. It's a SACWA requirement. We have moderation moderators in our industry that go out and double check. The moderation is by checking that assessor. So if you look at the evidence in that file, you look at the targets, let's say for private use, we want to see 10 fired holes on the target. And the assessor found this person, it's a, it's a tick. He's passed his shooting. There's the little tick. And the moderator goes in and counts the holes and he only gets nine. Now he finds that he cannot uphold the assessment decision. That would then get reported through to us that, yeah, is an issue that needs to be looked at. Alternatively, everything in the file shows that the assessor came to the right conclusion. So, so what I'm taking from this is that what the PFTC tries to do is to make sure that the training actually takes place, that both the student and the training organization comply with a whole bunch of minimum requirements, which we haven't really gone into at this point, and it's to avoid – the poking a hole in the target scenario where someone operates out of their garage and says, come and pay me a thousand rand, I'll give you a certificate and let's create that portfolio of evidence. This structure, which seems very well engineered, if you'll excuse the pun, is intended to make sure that when a certificate is issued, the process in getting that certificate is, number one, physically done. It is done according to a set of predetermined requirements. It is done in a manner that is predetermined. It is done in a uniform manner, and it's done by someone who's qualified to do it. And then, of course, it's like when you write an exam for matric. Some marks are adjusted up or down, as the case may be, just depending on whatever the, the requirement of government is. And that seems to be your moderation process where you sample and say, okay, this person hasn't done it properly or this person has done it properly. And I, I assume as well that what would happen is if you get a portfolio of evidence where someone failed, you might look at it and say, this was marked too strictly. This person, in fact, is competent. 
That's the function of the PFTC as I understand it. You're 100% correct. That is what we aim to do in that we're avoiding this manufacturing fabrication of portfolios, that they actually went through the process that was required. And the very other important thing you mentioned was the who does it. So the center itself or the training provider itself has to be accredited, approved by us. We go out, we have our checklists, we make sure they have all the right equipment, materials, firearms, memorandum of understandings with shooting ranges, etc. that is required. And then also each individual involved in this entire process has to be registered with us. And those individuals can only operate at the level they're registered for. So if you're only a basic level instructor, you can't sign someone off at intermediate level. You have to be registered at the level you're signing to. So one thing that we haven't touched on so far, both with the PFTC and with the training providers, is cost. Now, this process is very complicated, and uh, one of the questions that often arises is, why does a firearm cost so much? Why does training cost so much? And from what I hear, training is not just going into a classroom and writing your test and firing a firearm. There is so much more to it, and the requirements, both of the training provider and of the PFTC, are quite substantial. You talked about a checklist of equipment. What investment should a training provider, minimum investment should a training provider have in order to be in a position to provide training? So just to follow on again your first question of we want to be called, we we are professionals, hence the name Professional Firearms Trainers Council. If you go to a professional, you understand that there's certain costs involved because the person has developed and qualified themselves to that professional level. Our industry is the same. You had to spend a lot of time, money, and effort getting yourself to a certain level, which is an investment that you're then going to share back with a learner sitting in front of you. And then the process of designing the materials, printing the materials, maintaining the equipment, all of those things obviously have a cost factor to that. If we look at the minimum, there's a few core criteria that I'm going to firstly touch on. The materials themselves must be accredited with us, which they either can have their own materials sent to us and accredited, or they can use one of our lead providers, which they can then have an agreement in place with them to utilize those accredited materials. They need to have a classroom, which is prop- properly equipped, so there's going to have to be the whiteboards, the tables, the chairs, the ventilation, bathrooms, the, the thing that it's not sitting under the tree somewhere with a camp chair and you're getting your training there. So there's a proper classroom facility. Within that classroom, we expect certain demos. So we talk about models, scale posters, uh, rubber guns or dummy guns, simulation firearms, because there's no live ammunition inside that classroom. It's only on the shooting range. So there's a whole bunch of training that must occur in a classroom that you have to have other equipment because you're not using live firearms there. Then when you go to the range, you need to go to your shooting range, which has to beat NCRS standards, SAPS approval standards. You have to maintain those shooting ranges. And then there again, you need your eye, your ear protection. You need to have your first aid kit up to date. You need to have the targets, the paper, the cookies that you mark with, we call them shooting range boxes, which is all the kit and your staple guns and everything. And all of these things have to be maintained if you want to have a, let's call it a pleasant, but a professional experience when you go through this training. So we've had a couple more acronyms. We know who the South African police services are, but you mentioned the NRCS, which is a national regulator for compulsory standards. And you've raised another very interesting issue, and that is shooting ranges. Do you have any function in respect of shooting ranges? Do you have the ability, for example, to refuse an accreditation if um, 
a training provider doesn't have access to an accredited shooting range? So I think to, to answer that, uh, there's a twofold question. Part of our process of accrediting a training provider to be recognized by us or accredited by us, they have to have SAPS accreditation, South African Police accreditation at the Central Firearms Registry or CFR. And each of the shooting ranges approved at the SAPS as well as the NRCS. We cannot approve a shooting range. However, if someone submits an application and the range is not approved, we cannot process that application until such time as the range is approved. So the range is certified? The ranges are certified. Uh, the NRCS, for those that don't know, what is replaced the old South African Bureau of Standards to make sure that the range meets certain standards. That is safety, safety occupational safety. health and safety, exactly. And then the SAPS verify that. If we find a trainer trying to use a range or using a range which is not accredited, we will report it to those two entities. And obviously, we would then take action against that provider and inform them they may not continue on that range. But we do not ourselves currently have the capability to accredit or assess or inspect ranges. Now, we've got to touch on the purpose of what the PFTC is. You've explained what is in essence a very complicated process of how a person does the training or how an institution must meet minimum criteria. What happens if that training body does not comply with the requirements, the criteria? If we find that a training provider is not compliant, we would send out a verify or verification team, which is another term in inspectors that would go out to gather the evidence. That's where we would sometimes confiscate portfolios of evidence like photographs, etc. We would then call that person in for a meeting to discuss are they aware of what's going on because some providers have numerous staff whereas others only have one or two. So the, the responsible person or the owner of the training provider might not know what's occurring. Either way, we then would normally go into a disciplinary process if there is fault found in that initial meeting. And the person could lose their accreditation. The person could lose their accreditation. They could be suspended. As far as possible, we're going to develop and processes with them where we try and build them up and, and assist them to rectify their errors. If we find criminality clear, they've taken a chance, they've tried to sell something, they've just broken all the rules, we actually report them to the police and the police then open up criminal investigations against the entity and the individuals involved. Mac, it sounds like you fulfill a public function or public service, and it sounds like it's a crucial public service. What can the public do if they are dissatisfied with the training that they have received, or can the public access some sort of database to find out who is compliant and someone who has been suspended or even had their accreditation removed. Is that part of the function of the PFTC? Definitely. And when you talk about we are public performing public function, I think we also need to state that we are a non-profit organization and that our website contains all our accredited companies and individuals can be checked on there. If they're not listed by us, then they are not accredited by us. It's so they can't provide training. They can't provide so, well so non, non-accredited training. So the first message I'm taking from this is if I'm going to go do training and I want to make sure that I'm getting value for money and I'm getting proper training is go onto the PFTC website with the details of whoever's going to provide me with the training and check. Yes. So go to our, our website and you'll see a list of accredited trainers down there or 
companies are the websites www.pfdc.co.za. The training institution themselves will have a certificate from us as well that should be displayed or available if requested, which will tell you when they're accredited with us and for what period they're accredited for us. Oh, so the accreditation doesn't last forever. It's no. periodical re-evaluations. Correct. We do annual re-evaluations. So you get given your accreditation, and on a yearly basis, we request certain documentation. We do, let's call it a percentage of surprise visits to our providers, and the process goes through. So every year, we re-evaluate, is everything as still as it should be at that provider? And based on that, we will then reissue the next accreditation. So bottom line is, if you have any doubt or question as to the level of training or the authenticity of training provided by a training provider, there is a way that you can check and see that it is proper accredited training. And that's go to the PFTC website. Does the PFTC have a telephone number? Yes, the number is 011-664-8655. And they can phone in as well as go onto the they website. They can phone in and go onto the website as well. What happens if I go and I do training and I'm given a certificate by a training provider that is not accredited. You're not going to be able to use the certificate for the purposes of going to the police and applying for your competency certificate at the police. So what is that process and what does it mean? So there's a prerequisite within the Act that says you must have completed the prescribed training. And the police use our certification as well as the professional body certification as the evidence that this prescribed training has occurred. They then, the police being, would then do a background check on you, crim check on you, reference checks, take our certificates, and then issue a competency certificate. Only the police can issue a competency certificate, which in short says you are able to own a firearm. You're a reasonable, competent person in owning a firearm. Now, I just want to clarify some of this terminology because to start with, it sounds to me like there's more than one certificate. I get a certificate from the, the training provider and assuming that that training provider is accredited, I have to submit it or the training provider submits it to you as the PFTC. What then happens? So our system, which we're very proud of, is an automated system. The training provider would issue his proficiency certificate, and at the same time, if all the requirements are met, he can print our statement of results there and then. Our statement of results also contain a unique barcode and a unique computer-generated number, which you can verify on our PFTC website as well, which the police often do to ensure that it's not a fraudulently issued or try copy our certification. But it's, it's what, what the PFTC issues is in an official document. It's an official document. You get it there and then you have both certificates and you take both of those with you when you go to the police to apply for competency. And there's other documents required at that time by the police. The designated firearm officers would be able to explain to you at station level what other documents would be required in conjunction of these two certificates. So there we have it. It's a complicated process, regulated by law, but it most definitely seems to be very well regulated by the private sector. And the ultimate outcome is that people get proper training, they're safe, and then they ultimately can be deemed to be competent. 100%. As I said, our aim is the, the ethics, quality, and pride in firearms training is what we have under our logo, and that's our aim. How broad is your mandate? Who falls under the PFTC? So it's for private training institutions that claim to be accredited, linked, in other words, to the SACWA systems and standards. However, many of the state departments or organs of state choose to also be accredited with us. 
as they can use our structures and systems to get their approvals for their state firearms or permits to carry state firearms. Give us an example. So we've got correctional services. We've got a few metro departments. We've got a few defense force units. We've got a few police training comp- uh, divisions speaking to us. So it is quite broad, as I said, but that's a voluntary process for the state people. So these are government departments, and that, of course, raises or begs the question of transformation. How transformed is the training environment? It's very much transformed, and it's something that is continuously growing, and it's it's exciting for us to see how fast it's growing. So our, if we look at just the private training providers, the ownership, we're sitting now at about 25% black-owned, and in our instructors, we're sitting at sort of about 30 to 40% of instructors or range officers that are black or non-white. And we're also finding that there's this continued change in our industry where it was traditionally the the white male that owned the firearm and went to the shooting range participation on the shooting ranges and activities has become a lot more diverse this is cliffcentral.com